0: Today's reading is Psalm 137 and Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7. Psalm 137 By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks.
1: Jeremiah 29, 1-7 This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakin and the Queen Mother, the court officials, officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: I'd like to begin with this image behind me. Now, the print is rather small, but it says on the top, 2015 forced displacement hits a record high. It's from the UN uh, committee on... It's a refugee committee, and um, they put out these statistics on refugees, on displaced people. It's a map describing the current movement of refugees in our world today. And these are people who are forced to leave their homes or their country for, for some reason. Usually it's because of war. Uh, let's go back to the other slide real quickly, just a second. Thank you. Um, the three countries that are producing the most refugees is, um, of course, Syria, Burundi, which is in uh, Africa, and Somalia, which is in Africa as well. Uh, okay, we can go to the next slide. Um, This next slide kind of gives you a little bit more feel of the statistics. 65.3 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. There are 21.3 million refugees, 10 million stateless people. It shows where the world's displaced people are being hosted. The Americas are hosting 12%. Um, The... The Refugees shows where they're coming from, the top hosting countries, and gives more statistics. It's a fascinating website if you're interested. But here's how many there are per minute. If I can have the next slide. Every minute, 24 people are displaced. One in 113 people. One out of every 113 people worldwide is an asylum seeker. Now, if these stats don't alarm or um, get your attention in some way, may I remind you of an image that got the world's attention in 2015. This image became iconic. Uh, Alan Kurdi, a three-year-old Syrian boy, drowned in the Mediterranean while his parents were trying to get the family to Europe. His little body washed up on the beach and caught the world's attention for this crisis that was going on in Syria. Most people don't get to Europe this is the Zatri refugee camp in Jordan. It covers two square miles, if you can kind of get a feel for what you're looking at right here. It covers two square miles. There are 140,000 Syrian refugees in this camp. It's right over the border of Syria. And it's in Jordan. This refugee camp comprises, it now makes up the fourth largest city in Jordan. This is just one of many refugee camps. Just look up. If you want something interesting, if, when you're done with your cat videos on YouTube, go and, and put in refugees on, on YouTube and let your world get rocked. Dial in this UN committee and watch what they're having to deal with worldwide with refugees. It's sobering. And I bring this before you not to put a guilt trip on you but rather a reality check and that is that for me personally I find it easy to go through my life, my daily life with this kind of stuff out of sight, out of mind because it really doesn't touch my life. I come to work and this doesn't affect me at all. But I also find it very difficult to, to, to formulate a, a response to this personally. I just don't know how to even grasp something of this this magnitude that is going on around us. But I also raise this reality to possibly allow you to feel the context, to feel the context of the two texts that were read to us just a few minutes ago. They're about displaced people. The two texts are about refugees, about people that have been forced out of their homeland by war. And Psalm 137 captures the heartache and the disorientation of a people defeated by war, their capital city destroyed, thousands of them relocated, deported to a distant land, They're living in exile away from their home, away from their culture, away from their own language, away from everything that is familiar to them. Now, to be fair, Babylon in the 6th century, which is present-day Iraq for us today, was not a bad place to end up. It had stable harvests, it had prosperity, it had high culture. Uh, here behind me is a, an image of the Ishtar Gate. This is one of the gates to the, um, to the inner wall of Babylon, and this is at the Pergamon, Pergamon Museum in Berlin. I had the opportunity, my wife and I had the opportunity a couple years ago to go to this museum, you can see the scale. I put this one in for the scale of the people and the scale of that wall, the scale of that, that entrance. That is one of the smallest entrances into the, into the, to the city. They had a, a, they had a facsimile of what it actually looked like and it was just the magnitude of this was just eye-popping. This was Babylon that is being talked about in Psalm 137 and Jeremiah 29 and in the book of Daniel. So it really wasn't necessarily a bad place. They weren't being forced off into some place that was really difficult to really to, to sustain a living. Yet Psalm 137 tells us these displaced people are far from happy. If you have a Bible, open it up. The Bible's underneath you, page 521. They are distraught and they are despairing. Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. That's Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors' mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. When asked by their captors to sing songs of joy about their homeland, they say to them that they would rather hang their instruments in trees than to sing those songs under the present circumstances. In other words, they don't want to normalize the situation. They don't want to settle down. They don't want to just get on with life. They want to remember Jerusalem, Zion. They want to never forget. And above all, verses 7 to 9, they want justice on their captors. So Psalm 137 speaks of, of a longing for home, of not refusing to settle down, not giving up, not settling for the status quo, even with the odds stacked against you that you will ever return to normalcy or the way things used to be. So that's the first text that was read to us this morning. The second text read to us is Jeremiah 29. If you want to turn over to Jeremiah 29, that's page 656 in the Blue Bibles under your seat. These are the same people in exile in Babylon. So both of them have a setting of exile in Babylon. But in Jeremiah 29, these are not the words of the people. Psalm 137 was giving voice to the words of the people, but in Jeremiah 29, these are the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who was speaking words to the people on behalf of God. So what is it that God wants these people in exile to hear? What does God tell Jeremiah to tell them? Does God tell Jeremiah to tell them to just wait around because God will all of a sudden swoop down and snatch them off the earth to a disembodied existence in heaven? Does he tell them to just kind of find their own kind of personal spirituality that that suits them, that works for them? No, he doesn't tell them that at all. He says that exile will come to an end, verse 10 says. If you're looking down at the text, Jeremiah 29.10 but it says it's going to be in 70 years. Imagine being told, imagine being in exile away from your homeland, away from your culture, away from your language, away from everything that was familiar, and you're being given words of hope, and you're being told, yes, there will be a return. You'll get back to a state, to, to the place that, that you were brought out of, but it will be in 70 years. And what would you automatically do? You you do the calendar thing, right? How old am I going to be? Am I going to be alive, most likely? Seventy years. And yet that's what Jeremiah, that's what God tells Jeremiah to tell them. Yes, they will get home. So don't give up on the vision of a return to Zion. But in the meantime, he says, verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, don't sit around waiting for civilization to collapse and clapping your hands with glee when you see signs of it in the headlines. In fact, do just the opposite. Get on with life. And pray for Babylon. Yes, pray for Babylon. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. Now, these words, like many of Jeremiah's, were probably received with eye rolling and contempt. You can't be serious. But what Jeremiah is saying in these words is take seriously the place where you find yourselves. Don't use exile as an excuse for failing to live as well as you can in the present moment and in the present place where you find yourself. Yes, remember Jerusalem, but remember ordinary life now because that's, where you, that's what you've been called to live. And live that ordinary life well. Don't live it as a stepping stone to something else, always looking to the next place, the next thing the next potential move. Rather, remember Jerusalem, but also be attentive to that particular place where God has placed you now. In other words, hope for Zion, live well in Babylon. Hope for the kingdom of God, live well in Long Beach, Lakewood, Seal Beach, Redondo Beach, Huntington Beach, wherever you find yourself. So those are the two texts that were read to us this morning. So my question that you might be asking, that I'll pose, is why am I spending time on those two texts? Well, first of all, they were the the setting for what we're going to be looking at in the book of Daniel. Daniel is set in Babylon. It's exile in Babylon. It's a young man who's been deported to Babylon. So we'll be looking at at him in Daniel 1 to 6. But also, I believe these texts speak to God's people still today. See, I think to be a a Christian is not about embracing abstract ideas, nor is it about just waiting around for some kind of a disembodied future existence in heaven. We're called to embrace a life, an embodied, godly, faithful, and fruitful life in our present time and place. But what does that look like in practice? And that's the big question. What does it look like in practice? Who gets to determine that, of course? But what does it look like in practice, especially in a culture where it feels like Christians are increasingly finding it difficult to fit in as a Christian? You might say that Christians today are experiencing an exile of sorts as we are relegated to the margins of society. I mean, if you want to hold private beliefs, that's fine. But just don't go public with them, and certainly don't actively promote them. I was reminded of that recently when I went to the optometrist optometrist to get um, a new prescription because I needed to get my glasses updated. It was a day off, and so I was wearing my Ohio State shirt, as always I wear on a day off. No Ohio State fans here, that's fine. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. And so because I wore that in, then it naturally promoted, it prompted a conversation because the optometrist was a graduate of Stanford, and so we talked about schools and we talked about football teams, and then it came around to uh, my saying what I was experiencing in terms of my eyesight because I do a lot of reading on a screen, I do a lot of reading, printed reading and writing and that type of stuff. And that raised a proverbial question, oh, so what do you do? And I had this microsecond in which I decide, do I respond, do I divert, what do I do? And so I decided, I'm just going for it. So I told him. And what was interesting is I held his eyes as I told him. And he retained the smile on his face, but his eyes said something very different. The best description I have, it's what happens when you're in a room and full of people, and you smell an odor that is foreign. And you still smile, but you're looking around with terror because you don't want to be blamed for that odor. I'm being very dignified in the way I'm describing that, all right? But it's this this look of terror. And I held his eyes to see what he would say. And what he said to me was classic. He says, well... We all have to find our own way. And to make the point further, he paused and he said it again to me, as if to say, let's keep this topic to ourselves and let's end it right now. So in the coming weeks, I want to explore what it looks like to live a faithful and fruitful life in our particular place and time. And just to clarify, this is not about me offering a formula to fix the church. I'll say that again. This is not about me offering a formula to fix the church. Nor am I attempting to tell you to try harder in any area. I have language for that. I just said it. I could tell you try harder. So I'm not covertly telling you to try something different, to try harder with something. So I just want to get that off the table right now nor am I trying to get you to do anything. I recognize I can't get anyone to do anything, so I'll just go ahead and open up my hands on that one too. I have, I'm powerless to make anyone do anything. I have no authority in that sense. I can try to be persuasive, but I can't make someone do something. Now, I do believe the Spirit of God can, and I have... Tremendous confidence in the resurrected Jesus. So I believe that Jesus can do something. And that is my prayer that in this series that that we might hear the voice of Jesus, we might sense what it is that he's calling us to do, we might respond to him. But I agree with Alan Roxborough when he says that we're in the midst of what he calls the great unraveling. The great unraveling. He says there's a sense in which there's something deeply amiss in Western society and in North American culture. And he says that that's uh, that's a partial reason for the current political climate that's produced a populist candidate like Donald Trump. There's a deep sense that what we've called Western society is coming apart. And you sense it if you're paying attention to what's going on in the news headlines and what's going on in the political climate right now. Putting silly language on it, like post anything, is merely putting a language on something to describe it, but it doesn't doesn't explain anything. We're in a time and a place where what we've known is coming apart. And we don't have a picture, we don't have a sense of what lies ahead or what to do about it. My friends, we are living in very interesting times. His explanation which I appreciate is that he says that modernity which is the modern western experiment was a massive wager. And what was a wager? We came to be we came to believe we came to be convinced that through human agency we could live well without god. That was modernity's wager. And in place of God's agency, the modern West created a new trinity, the self, capitalism, and the state. And he goes on to say, we then made the church and therefore God useful adjuncts to these primary wagers as to how to make life work. And so that's why you see this massive focus on the self and our culture that is supported by capitalism, which is then supported by the state. Think about that one this afternoon. That is a massive piece of explanation for what we're experiencing. Where is God? Well, God is still there, especially in America, but now God is useful to support these other things. God became useful to support these other things. And you see that reflected in, in churches. You see that reflected in, in pastor's sermons. You see it reflected in the Christian Christian media and book publishing company, God is presented today primarily in evangelicalism in America as someone who is useful to your life to support you as you pursue these other things. God became a useful adjunct to support the pursuit of this life without God that is supported by capitalism and by the state. So increasingly, people are feeling that modernity's wager was a huge lie. And they don't know what to do about it, and no one knows what to do about it. So we still live in a profoundly religious society that's hungry for God and that's hungry for the transcendent, but the Christian God makes less and less sense to people because the Christian God that's been presented for the past 100 years has been presented as a useful adjunct to other things in life. So in the midst of the great unraveling, if what he's saying is true, and I believe it is true, I believe that he's very prophetic, we're in the midst of a great unraveling. And in the midst of that great unraveling, there's a great opportunity. Because at least in the biblical narrative, and when you look at the biblical narrative, you see this pattern that in the space of unraveling where you don't know what's coming, that's where God's future emerges. You see, it's in the space of the great unraveling where you're no longer using God as something that is useful because you've come to the end of realizing there's nothing you can do to fix the church, to fix the culture, to fix capitalism, to fix the state, to fix your life, to fix your family, to fix your marriage, that all the fixes are not working. And it's there in that space of unraveling where God's future begins to open up. And it begins to reveal, here's what I want to do. My question for the church in North America is, will we even notice? Will we even notice For the churches in North America, this means resisting the impulse to depend on human agency. And what I mean by that is it's the the thinking that goes like this and maybe it doesn't resonate with you because you're not as embedded in the church as I have been. But the thinking goes like this, the church is in trouble, we're not growing, we can figure out some s- tactic or strategy to to try to fix things. We'll, we'll go to uh, the best practices in the business world, or we'll go to um, the mega churches that run like businesses, because they've already taken the best practices of business, and they've made it work for the church, and now it's growing, and we'll use that to try to fix the church and make it work again. I've been steeped in that since the 1970s. And that began really in the 1960s, if you look at it historically. So do the math. 1960 to the present, we have had a lot of decades of this emphasis on human agency thinking that we can fix it. And so what happens when this unraveling occurs as it invites us into a different posture. It invites us into a different imagination. And that's typically what needs to be challenged, is the way that we see, the way that we think about God, the way that we think that God might want to work. And so to help us to do that, what I'm doing is bringing Daniel 1 to 6 in front of us and exploring that with you, in hopes that our imaginations might be piqued, that we might be, we might see that in the midst of this unraveling, that God wants to reveal to us something about Himself and the way that He's working in ways that we may not see. That we might then join Him in a new future that He has for us. I don't have it mapped out, like I said. I don't have the answers, and I don't have it all figured out. And I'm not going to be unveiling it to you. I'm going to be studying the book of Daniel just like you could, and we'll explore it together. Territory, uncharted. Future, uncharted. Okay, is that all right? Okay. You're following a guide who's standing right next to you, (laughs) not one who's way down the line, but someone who's out right next to you saying, let's do this together. Perhaps in the few minutes that we've had in talking about this text today, there was something in there that maybe the Spirit of God, maybe you felt just this little spark of awakening or something caught your attention, and you're like, rather than just maybe pushing it aside or using some kind of reflexive dismissal, maybe there's something that, that God is wanting to speak to you about today. Maybe it's about the way that you approach life or God or the choices you're making or the choices you're facing. Or perhaps it's the general disorientation you're feeling in life, or the anxiety, or the fear that you're carrying. There's so many people in our culture, as I talk to people, that are just heavy with fear and anxiety. And they feel so alone as well. They feel that things are unraveling, but they haven't put the words on it yet. And my invitation to you today simply, and this doesn't come out of the sermon, but just as we transition here, is to not go it alone. To not think that you can fix it if you just try hard, if you just apply three things, you just read the book, you just get this or this just. Anytime there's just in front of the sentence or the words, I, I shut down. And I invite you to share it with someone today. We'll be having people up here afterwards who would love to pray with you to carry your burden with you so that you don't carry it alone, so you don't go through life alone, but to have someone who goes and talks to Jesus on your behalf when perhaps you don't have the words to say to him. But just don't go it alone. And maybe today you need to pray for God's future to be real to you, to be revealed to you, and to be real to you. You can know this above all else, that God loves you. You say, well, how do I know that? I don't necessarily feel that. If you had a week like mine, you couldn't say that because it doesn't feel like God's love. The reason why I can say to you without hesitation that God loves you is because I look to what he's done when he sent Jesus into this world and Jesus loved the world so much that he gave his own life so that we might have life And he did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave. God raised him from the grave as a vindication of his love, saying, see, I told you I love you. I love you, and there's nothing that can separate you from my love. My love is persistent. My love will go through hell. My love will go through torture. My love will go through separation in order to be something you experience. That's the God who's revealed in the Bible. And that's the God who is for you and for us. He really does love you. He really does love us. So I want to invite the, um, the prayer team to come up. We're going to do it. We have one song left, so I want to invite the prayer... No, wait, don't bring the prayer team up because Daniel has a boatload of announcements. <laughs> Just did a quick change. But I want to invite Vanessa and the team up to give us words to respond to God. I want to invite you to stand right now and also there, will there give you an opportunity for a response of generosity toward God's kingdom and toward the church's role in the kingdom of God as we give of what God has entrusted us with. But let's, in this last song that Vanessa leads us in, let's raise our voices and let her give us words and lead us to praise God, this God who has our future, who will guide us into the future that He has for us to show us what it is that He wants to do.